If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. I have enjoyed my personal study in the book of Nehemiah. Whether I've been able to convey that and to have you join in that enjoyment is another story. But Nehemiah is an exceptional man. Nehemiah, you may remember, was burdened by God to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls which had been broken down. For many years, the people of Israel have been in bondage in Babylon, and Nehemiah's heart is stirred to go back, and incredibly God provides for him. And the book of Nehemiah, as we have before us, is his personal memoir. It's his account of what it took to rebuild the wall. He tells us everything. We see all of the nuts and bolts of the operation. He allows us to see the attacks from the outside enemies. He helps us to gain a little insight into what it was like to communicate with the workforce and to tackle all of the problems that existed from the inside. We even were with him in chapter 8 as Ezra steps forward and the law of God is reintroduced to people who had lost touch with God's expectations. And as the law was communicated to them, an incredible revival breaks out. And the priests are standing around, and as the law of God, which was difficult to understand, particularly for a generation of people who were utterly ignorant of what God had said, separated by many years, separated now by a culture, they are caused and helped to understand what God expected. And in chapter 9, realizing they had woefully and inadequately lived their lives in light of God's expectations, they mourn and they cry, they weep, they confess and they repent. It is an incredibly emotional season. Chapter 8, they are in exultation and they are in joy as they are encountering the law of God having completed the walls. In chapter 9, confronted with how much they have failed God and the penalty for their sin in bondage and the wreckage that was Jerusalem, they are confessing and they are weeping. And now there is a time for a practical step. Because emotion can only get us so far. But eventually, every one of us will face the daily grind. And in the daily grind, largely, is where we capitulate. And for us to understand the relevance of chapter 10, we have to grasp just that. Incredible revival, repentance, and now a commitment to navigate life in such a way so that they can continue to please God. And I'll direct your attention here in chapter 9 to the very last verse. In the last verse of chapter 9, we get insight to what chapter 10 is all about. And because of all this, verse 38, because of all of the law which had been communicated to us, because of our woeful life in light of what God expected of us, because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And then you get into chapter 10. And this is the kind of passage in the Old Testament that scares us from reading the Old Testament. We get into a list of names, and we can't pronounce them, and we don't know who they are, but what it is, is it's a listing, it's an accounting of all of these individuals who signed this declaration. 
a public commitment, and they are sealing it. And the nobles and the princes and the priests and the leaders are all signing on. And I want you to skip all the way down to verse 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, that's the gatekeepers, the singers, the nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they claved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath. Since the severity of this moment, Don't get lost in all of the names that you cannot understand. Just see it as relevant as it truly is. Grasp the timeless principles that are not bound by any singular generation that help us navigate our lives now. They have done something great for God. It's tangible and it is visible. They are unbelievably excited. Their faith has been revitalized. They can walk over and put their hands on the wall at Jerusalem. They can look around them and see that God has worked on their behalf. Fresh in their minds is the reading of the law of God from a prophet like Ezra. From special priests who broke them up into groups and helped them grasp what God expected of them. Freshly they have realized that they have done nothing right. Fresh in their minds and on their hearts is the awareness that they were carried off into bondage. They look around them and they still see a city without dwellings on the inside. They realize that if they do not obey God, punishment goes along with it. And they've wept over that. But emotion for them is not enough. They realize if they're really going to please God, it is going to take commitment in order for them to navigate the daily grind. And commitment is a big word. I don't mean it's a big word in the sense that it's got a lot of letters or that it is lengthy, but I mean in what it intends. Commitment always comes at a cost. It always involves sacrifice. A sacrifice of time and a sacrifice of purpose and priorities and energy and effort and even our own will and agenda. Commitment. What they desire to do is to not merely choose God, but to choose a lifestyle. And those are two vastly different things as well. Choosing God, that's what they've done in coming back to Jerusalem. That's what they've done in participating in the rebuilding of the walls. Choosing God, that's what they've done in listening to the law. Choosing God, that's what they've done in repenting. But now they are aware they must choose a lifestyle that will reinforce their choice of following God. Choose a lifestyle that will enable them to consistently please God. They're tired of the way things have been. They are tired of getting their own way. They are tired of what their will has accomplished and profited them. And they want what God wants. And in effect, if I could summarize all of it, what they are saying is this. We will allow the scriptures to determine our lifestyle. What does that look like? If you look down in verse 30, you'll note this, and it's a strange phrase. And we would not give our daughters, here's a pledge that we make, here's a commitment, a declaration that we sign on to. We will not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Now, I understand our culture is different than this time, and most of these marriages were arranged marriages. And it even seems discriminatory 
We won't give our sons to the daughters of the land and the inhabitants of the land around us, and we won't take them into our homes either. We will make a distinction between us and them. Now, what you need to understand is that the people who surrounded this returning remnant of Jews was a group of inhabitants that were unusually degenerate. They were incredibly lewd. In fact, it was common custom and it was their habit for worship to sacrifice their infant children into a furnace in the worship of the god Moloch. And so they are making a declaration publicly saying, we sign on to this, we will stay separated from the world that is surrounding us. Now if you really want to understand the danger that was inherent in the decision that they made, you just would need to look back a little bit in history and reintroduce yourself to a man named Solomon. You're perhaps familiar with Solomon. The Bible will tell us he is the wisest man that ever lived. In fact, he has a collection of Proverbs that are nuggets of wisdom for us. And Solomon, being the wisest man who ever lived, clearly he is a good decision maker. Clearly he has insight and perception. In fact, his wisdom helps him, enables him to make one of the most strategic decisions in the Bible as we witness him even solving problems within the kingdom. But he had a weakness. And Solomon's weakness was women. And the Bible tells us this of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3. And he had 700 wives. Alright, now listen, you may not be a scholar of the Bible, but that's not good. You might not be a Hebrew scholar, but this is not what God intended. And over and above his 700 wives, princesses, the Bible says he had 300 concubines. That's a thousand, and I'm not a great mathematician. Contractually, King Solomon has entered into marriages and relationships with women from surrounding kingdoms. Now, I know he was a smart guy, but I also know a lot of this was politically motivated and a lot of this was carnally motivated, but I have no doubt in my mind that he didn't do background checks on every woman that he married or brought into the palace. And I also know that many of the women that he was involved with were from pagan backgrounds and were rejectors defiantly of the one true God. And they worshipped according to pagan ritual and idolatry. And when they came into Solomon's house and into the kingdom, they did not leave that behind. They brought it with them. And the Bible gives us this nugget of wisdom. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. His wives, through coercion, his wives, through proximity, his wives, maybe even through manipulation, his wives, maybe even through his desire to fulfill expectation, literally turn his heart away from worshiping God as God intended, and he begins to involve himself in the idolatrous pagan ritual that these women brought in. 
I'm not blaming women in that. I'm blaming Solomon. And in this scenario, it is displayed to us the necessity of the decision that was made. We cannot intermarry because those rituals will come in and we will default on our promise before God. Now, the Bible in the New Testament says something very important. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and he said, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? He responds to that question. He argues this separatist view. He says, well, what concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? He gets on down and he says, I know this. You are the temple of the living God. And because you are the temple of the living God, there must be distinction between you and the world that surrounds you. Here's what I believe. And I'm not communicating this as mere opinion. I'm articulating this as what I believe to be communicated by Paul to the letter to the Corinthians. He says this. You are the temple of the living God as a believer. As a follower of Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You must then protect the temple. And I don't know that we can even quantify the influence that the surrounding world has on us. I don't think we can fully comprehend the vast expanse of information that we take in. And I will tell you, I don't mean this as a conspiracist, I mean it as a fact. Everything in the world is designed to cause us to think a certain way. That's just fact. Even the truth of Scripture is doing that. It's hard for us to comprehend how much the world's thinking has invaded our life. That's why it is of utmost importance that believers saturate their life with the Word of God. In fact, the most important facet of us gathering together and assembling right now is that we open the Word of Truth and we encounter what God says because what our desire is, is to filter all of our thinking biblically. I don't care if you think like me, I don't care if you look like me, act like me, talk like me, but what does matter is that we think according to Scripture. And in the midst of a world that is constantly trying to shape our thinking and mold our worldview, it is necessary that we separate ourselves, that we clear and distinctly align with what God expects, and that's what's going on. I know that it's cultural to them, and I grasp that it's Old Testament law, but this principle transcends generations. It transcends culture. We must be distinct in our separation, the way that we think. I I love what one author said. He said this, or he wrote this. If he said it, I couldn't hear it through the pages of a book, but he wrote this. That's That's a distinction. He said... It has never ceased to amaze me that we as Christians have developed a kind of selective vision. That selective vision allows us to be deeply and sincerely involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally pagan in the day-out, day-out guts of our lives. And we never even realize it. He says, we won't care if anyone else in the world lives by this, we will live by it. The scripture will be our guide. We won't shrug our shoulders, yawn, and say it doesn't matter. We will be distinct. Our philosophy of life will not be like that of those who live outside the walls. This is our promise to you, God. That's what's happening. By the time we end chapter 9, freshly aware of what God expects, painfully aware of their inadequate life, they have confessed it, they're squared up with God. 
Realizing that emotion is not enough to navigate successfully to the finish line, they are establishing practical guidelines and they are publicly declaring, this is what we will do. We will be distinct in our lives. We will safeguard our thinking so that we please you, God. We're not just choosing you, we're choosing a lifestyle that will enable us to please you. That doesn't mean you have to be wacky. It doesn't mean you have to be weird. It just means you have to be godly. As they continue on, I I get more into the Old Testament law. Verse 31, and I'll tell you from the onset, this is a lot of Old Testament law. Here's what the Bible says. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. They are signing their name to this. This is a major decision. Here's what they're saying. We have developed a system of the market on Sunday. And we're stopping it on Sabbath day. Not Sunday. On Sabbath day and holy day. If anybody from the outside brings in any wares or any victuals and they try to sell it on the Sabbath, we are now declaring we will not buy it. We will keep the Sabbath day holy. And every seventh year, we will let the land lay idle. We will not plant crops. And every seventh year, we will forgive every debt that is owed to us by a fellow Jew. And we publicly declare and sign our names to this. That's major. That's huge. Why would they say, we'll let the land lay idle every seven years and we will forgive every debt every seven years? That's big time. Why would they do that? Because in the law of God, that was his articulated expectation for them. Now, doesn't that just seem like God's being mean? This was an agrarian society. I'm utterly dependent for my livelihood on what I put into the ground. And if I am every seventh year, according to the Sabbath rule, letting the land rest, where is my income coming from? If I forgive every debt, every seventh year, even that which I am rightfully owed, who will take care of me? If I am losing a day of the week in my selling and my buying, are you aware, God, that's one-seventh of my business down? Yes, God's aware. And what the expectation from God was, was this. It was his designed curriculum of faith. Look at me as your sole provider. Understand that everything that you have comes from me and I will always bless your obedience. Now, I'm not saying that every seven years you should take a year off. I doubt your boss would appreciate that. I could try to be super spiritual about it and say to the church, look, I was going to take this year off. It's a seventh year. And then try to abuse you with the scripture. But I don't think that would work either. I know that's Old Testament law. I know that in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us every day is holy. We don't have to stop and honor any day or or festival or event. Every day is holy. I grasp that. But again, the principle transcends culture and the principle transcends time. Here is what they are saying. We publicly declare to choose a lifestyle that indicates we will always be obedient to you even when it requires extravagant faith. 
We will choose a lifestyle that communicates back to you and to all those around us that you, God, are our sustainer. You are our provider. Everything that we have and everything that we do centers around your word. Our obedience is always dictated by our faith. And then as we read on, we get to verse 32 and 33 and 34. And and I just want you to notice what they say at the beginning of verse 32, and then I'll jump a few verses. In verse 32, they say this, We're also making this declaration. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And as you get to the very end of verse 39, all of this is summed up, We will not forsake the house of our God. Here's what they're getting at. The worship system was built around the temple. That's the Old Testament. And there was cost associated with the operation of the temple. And in the law, if you go back to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all those books that you try to skip, and you even have trouble saying, if you go back into there, you will note that God had communicated, He had outlined methods for providing for the operation of the temple and for the Levitical tribe. And they are now aware that they have utterly failed in taking care of the house of God. And they were in bondage in Babylon, and now they are back, and the walls are rebuilt, and they are saying, and God, above and beyond all, we choose to not forget you. We publicly declare to remember you and to thank you. You who dwell amongst us. Now let's call a time out and set the emotional scene. Are they very aware of the goodness of God right now? Yes. They have come from bondage. They are back in Jerusalem. The walls are rebuilt. They are excited. They have seen God provide. It is fresh in their minds that God is merciful, that God is powerful, that God is authoritative, that He is holy, and that He is real. And so it is very easy for them to say, so we give back to you as a thank you for your awesome ways. But something happens in the process of time. Now, I'm a little ahead of you in the study of Nehemiah, but here's what happens. You still have to come back to hear the end. This doesn't count. Nehemiah is going to leave. He's the governor. He's going to leave, and he's going to go back to the kingdom of Persia, and he's gone for a number of years. And in the process of time, without Nehemiah's leadership, and in the process of time, as they rebuild Jerusalem a little further, and they get a little bit comfortable, you know what happens? As they gain comfort, and as Nehemiah's absence grows longer, they forget what they've covenanted to, and they stop taking care of the house of God. And so there's another minor prophet. His name is Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is a prophet who prophesies during the time that Nehemiah is away and the people are here at Jerusalem. And he is a scathing preacher. He's the kind no one wants to hear from, especially if you're not doing right. He says to the people, why are you robbing God? Whoa. The people look back at him and they say, wherein have we robbed God? And he says, in your tithes and in your offerings. And then the Malachi says this, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house and prove me now herewith. Malachi has to preach to the people, 
come on now. Don't forget to say thank you to God. Come on now. Don't forget what you covenanted to. Don't forget what you promised. Don't forget that you chose this lifestyle, not because you wanted to be different, distinct, or weird, but you chose this to bring honor to God. What I realized from that is they're just like us. Emotion's not enough, and sometimes practical implementation is not enough, and we desperately need God to be merciful to us and send us another reminder. And sometimes it comes in the form of Malachi, and sometimes it comes in the form of April 11th sermons where we're like, oh yeah, I should say thank you to God. I know this one preacher He's a great speaker. He said this, where there is true spiritual revival, it will reveal itself in the way we support God's work. And then he said this, I am convinced that the most sensitive nerve in a person's body is the nerve that runs from his heart to his back pocket. And we all understand that, don't we? In fact, oftentimes, when we talk about giving, our initial reaction is negative. And I'm always careful because it's Victory Sunday time of year and I always say things like, and this is the only time of the year we focus on stewardship. If you find it in your heart, forgive me for talking about giving to God. I will openly apologize to you. And if you just let me slip this in, we do take offerings and you know, God does. And I apologize for bringing this up to you. And I'm so, so sorry for, it's ridiculous. Because my own reaction oftentimes is I'll give to God and I'll say things like, there you go. I know that's what you wanted from me. I understand that's your expectation from me. But the Bible tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. Not grudgingly, nor of necessity. And so much of ministry is coercion. And so much of our effort is based on guilt. Well, if you make me feel bad, I guess I'll step up and do it. And if you're going to try to manipulate me by telling me God's holding a hammer over my head and he's going to ding me in the skull if I don't behave, my, I guess I will. And if you're going to try to coerce me into doing these things, there's no coercion tactic. There's no manipulation tactic. There's no guilt tactic at all in chapter 10. This is a group of people who are keenly aware that God has done something tangible, visible, and great. They are freshly aware of what God expects. They are aware of how they've been inadequate in doing it. And now they're simply saying, that's what I want to do. I want to give to God because I say thank you. In the process of time, they falter. And God sends a reminder and they square it up again. But even Jesus taught us this. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your money is, that's really where your heart is. Motive is God's primary concern. Here's what I'm driving at. All of us want to please God. In fact, I think that's evidenced by our presence here now. I mean, we're not trying to defy God. We're not trying to make God unhappy and we realize it's possible to please God. The Bible tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God, which indicates with faith, it is possible to please God. I just referenced a moment ago in 2 Corinthians 9, where the Apostle Paul says, God loveth a cheerful giver. Think for just a minute that there are things that we can do that creator God loves, that please him. And that's our desire. And we're just like the people who were gathered together here. We're faulty, we're prone to failure, we're prone to wander, we can slip and fall. And we need reminders. 
And we're encountering the truth of God. And when we encounter the truth of God, oftentimes we realize this necessitates a change. I'm not living like I should. I'm not doing what I should. I'm not filtering life like I should. I'm not as distinct as I should be. And, and we know emotion's not enough, so there's got to be some practical implementation because I'm choosing a lifestyle that tells God I want to please him. And here what we're seeing is a group of people do just that. We will be distinct. We will remember you are our sole provider and we will live lives of gratitude by giving back to you. It's all about God. 400 years from now, Jesus Christ, the Savior, will be born. And about 433 years from now, he's going to come in on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem, and they are going to say, Hosanna. And they are going to welcome him in as salvation. By the end of the Passion Week, they are going to reject him, and they are going to shout, crucify him, and he will be crucified. And he will conquer. He will be in a tomb just outside the walls of this very city. And he will conquer death. And he will ascend on a mountain just outside of the city. And he's on the right hand of God in heaven. And and our lives are in response to the extravagant gift of his only begotten son, Jesus. And I'm not saying you're bound by Old Testament law and arranged marriages and Sabbath day expectations and not planting crops and and, and all this third of a shekel and I'm telling God I'll do that and I'm charging myself this, this God tax every year. We're free from that. We're not bound by the law. But we are bound and constrained by the love of Jesus Christ to a higher level of living. And we are choosing not just to follow Christ, not just choosing Christ for salvation, we choose a lifestyle. We choose a commitment to the cause of Christ. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.